To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Behind every massacre, there lies a reason. Sometimes they're obvious. Many mass murderers have similar traits. Sensation-seeking, lack of remorse, impulsivity, need for control, and predatory behavior. But other times, massacres are almost impossible to explain. Introducing Anatomy of a Massacre. Anatomy of a Massacre is Rockefeller Audio's newest podcast series. Anatomy of a Massacre is a true crime podcast investigating the most notorious massacres in human history. From serial killers to mass shooters to genocides, there lies a new horrid reason to expose in each episode. Join me, your host, Courtney Fretwell, a forensic psychologist, as I dive deep into the psychology, criminal theories, and policy implications behind each massacre. Anatomy of a Massacre begins Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Follow Anatomy of a Massacre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite shows so you don't miss an episode. You know what happened? Now, let's uncover why. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On May 17, 1976, John and Leslie Harris had dinner at an upscale Orange County, California restaurant. The married couple recently relocated from Hawaii. But the move was rough, and at dinner, they got into an argument. Words are exchanged, tempers flare, and Leslie storms off out of the restaurant. But later that night, Leslie never came home. She was gone. The next day, Leslie's naked body is found at a military base 20 miles away. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 144, The Murder of Leslie Harris. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit us at Patreon. .com/forensictales or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also help support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. 
Now, let's get to this week's episode. Before we get into Leslie Harris's story, there's been a recent update to a case we've covered on the show. In episode number 73, we covered the murder of Heyman Lee and the ultimate arrest and conviction of her former high school boyfriend, Adnan Syed. For many people, like myself, you heard about Adnan's case after listening to the podcast Serial. Well, about one week ago on September 19th, a Baltimore judge vacated Adnan's murder conviction and ordered his immediate release from prison after serving over two decades behind bars. According to the court's ruling, trial prosecutors didn't properly turn over evidence to Adnan's defense lawyers that could have helped them show that someone else killed Heyman Lee. The evidence suggests that there are at least two other credible suspects. After serving over 20 years in prison for a murder he said he didn't commit, and now the evidence suggests that he didn't commit, Adnan Syed has been released from prison, and it seems entirely unlikely that the state will ever recharge Adnan. As new information becomes available about these two new suspects, I'll share it in a future episode. Now, let's get to Leslie Harris's story. On May 17, 1976, the Costa Mesa Police Department in Southern California received a phone call. Costa Mesa is a city in Orange County between San Diego and Los Angeles. When most people think about Orange County, California, they think of sunny beaches and Disneyland. But in the late 1970s, there was much more to Orange County than simply Disneyland and beaches. Orange County possessed a darker side. During the 1970s, Southern California was a hotbed of serial killers. There was the Golden State Killer, the Night Stalker, the Dating Game Killer, the Hillside Strangler, and the Zodiac. And that's just to name a few. There was also a high rate of violent crime. The 1970s in Southern California saw an all-time high for homicides and rapes. So when the Costa Mesa Police Department received a phone call on May 17, 1976, about a missing young woman, they assumed the worst. On May 17, 1976, 33-year-old John Harris reported to the Costa Mesa Police Department that his wife, 30-year-old Leslie Penrod Harris, was missing. He told the investigators that around 8.30 p.m. the night before, they were having dinner at a restaurant at South Coast Plaza. South Coast Plaza is an upscale Costa Mesa shopping mall known across the country for its high-end stores and restaurants. According to John, he and Leslie argued during dinner. The couple relocated to Orange County, California from Honolulu, Hawaii a few weeks earlier. They moved to Southern California because John received a work transfer. John told the police that they got into an argument because Leslie wasn't happy about the move to Southern California. She missed her life in Hawaii and wasn't sure about starting a new one in Southern California. They also fought over the decision to purchase a condo. Leslie wanted to buy a home or a condo in Orange County, while John wasn't crazy about the idea. So he told Leslie they should wait on purchasing a home and rent an apartment instead. While they waited to buy or rent a place, 
John and Leslie stayed at the Airporter Inn in Irvine, a city only a few miles south of the restaurant in Costa Mesa. After the argument, John told the police that Leslie had gotten up from the table and left. He said he waited at the table thinking Leslie would return any minute. Maybe she needed a few minutes to cool down outside, or maybe she went to the restroom. But according to John, Leslie never came back to the table. John asked the restaurant staff to help look for her. He explained that they had gotten into a little bit of a fight, and now he didn't know where his wife was. The staff checked the lady's room, but she wasn't there. They then looked throughout the entire restaurant, but there was no sign of Leslie. After over an hour of waiting and searching for Leslie inside the restaurant, John left to check their hotel. He thought Leslie took a taxi cab home. But when he got to the Airporter Inn Hotel, Leslie wasn't there either. John waited for Leslie to return to the hotel for the next couple of hours. But after hours passed and she still didn't show up, John knew something was terribly wrong. So he called the Costa Mesa Police Department to report Leslie missing. The Costa Mesa Police Department quickly began searching for Leslie Penrod Harris. Based on John's statements, investigators had enough information to suspect that something might have happened to Leslie. But the search didn't last long. Around 4.30 a.m. the following day, May 18, 1976, Leslie's naked body was found on a road near the El Toro Marine Corps Air Station, a location 20 miles south from the restaurant in Costa Mesa where she was last seen with her husband. Orange County Sheriff's homicide detectives were the first to respond to the scene. When they got there, they found her body completely nude and lying on her back. Her hair was wet and she had visible minor injuries across her body. She had ligature marks around her ankles, suggesting that her body had been dragged from a car to where she was found. Investigators didn't find anything around Leslie's body. No wallet, no purse, none of her personal items were recovered, not even her clothes. It seemed like her body was discovered was a dump site and not the actual spot where she was killed. When Leslie was murdered, she had only lived in Orange County for a couple of weeks. She was only 30 years old and still had so much life to live. Her family and friends described her as easygoing and nice. She was the type of person who made friends easily. And when it came to being your friend, she stayed close. She was often described as a great friend who would always pick up the phone when you call. When John and Leslie Harris arrived in Orange County, they were about to embark on the second chapter of life. Orange County investigators quickly began collecting evidence from Leslie's body and the surrounding area, but they didn't find much. During the late 1970s, evidence collection at crime scenes was limited. Police departments didn't have much in the way of forensic or DNA testing. When it came to DNA, they could only perform blood typing tests on the samples. They could identify a suspect's blood type, but couldn't identify the specific person. During this time, there wasn't a national DNA database. 
if the police got a DNA profile from a crime scene, they could only compare it to a known person. But most criminal investigations don't have a known possible perpetrator already identified. Fingerprints weren't any better. The first fingerprint database wasn't created until years after Leslie's murder. It wasn't until 1980 that the first computer database of fingerprints was developed, which came to be known as the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or APHIS. So if investigators collected fingerprints at a crime scene in 1976, they could only compare the prints to a known individual, exactly like DNA. But Orange County investigators were careful at Leslie's crime scene to collect everything they could, even if they couldn't test everything. Investigators knew that Leslie didn't get to the El Toro Military Air Station by herself. John had the couple's only car, and the air station was 20 miles away from the restaurant in Costa Mesa. They also didn't think she took a bus there because it would have been too late. None of the buses in Orange County were running at the time. So if Leslie didn't get to the El Toro Air Station by herself, how did she get there and who took her there? Orange County investigators zeroed in on Leslie's husband, John Harris, as suspect number one. Anytime a significant other is murdered, the spouse is always considered suspect number one. It's a tale as old as time. The husband always did it. And when it came to Leslie's murder, John Harris was no different. Investigators knew that Leslie and John fought at the restaurant the night she disappeared. According to John's statement to the police, he and Leslie argued about purchasing a condo in their recent move to Orange County. He admitted to investigators that things weren't going great in their marriage. So now the police wondered if the husband always did it theory could actually be true. He fought with his wife the night she disappeared. He was the last person to see her alive. And they're having marital problems. All signs pointed to John as the killer. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes, This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash forensictales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Police suspected the couple left together after their fight at the restaurant. After leaving the restaurant, he killed her and drove 20 miles to the El Toro air station to dump her body. After he dumped her, he returned to their hotel in Irvine, waited a few hours, 
and then called the police to report her missing. But when the police spoke with the restaurant staff, they realized their theory had some significant flaws. The police interviewed all of the restaurant staff who worked on the night of May 17th, and what the staff told the police didn't seem to line up with the police's theory. Instead, their statements aligned with John's versions of events. According to the restaurant staff, they overheard John and Leslie arguing at the table. They all said John approached them about helping to look for Leslie, but they couldn't find her. None of the restaurant staff said John left the restaurant until about an hour after Leslie was last seen. Everything the workers said seemed to match John's story perfectly. John told the police that he thought Leslie might have taken a taxi after she left the restaurant. But when the police ran a report on all the taxi cabs in the area surrounding South Coast Plaza, they didn't find any report of any driver picking Leslie up. Investigators also discovered that John had the couple's only car. And based on the timeline, the police didn't think John had enough time to leave the restaurant in Costa Mesa, drive to the El Toro air station, then come back to call the police. The timeline simply didn't add up. Based on this new information, the Orange County Sheriff's Office was back at square one. Now, instead of focusing all their attention on the husband, they turned to the autopsy for clues. Leslie's autopsy revealed that she'd been strangled to death and sexually assaulted. She had ligature marks around her ankles like she had been dragged, but the police didn't find any rope at the scene. She also had bruising on the right side of her body, indicating trauma. At the time of Leslie's autopsy in 1976, police departments were only doing basic sexual assault exams. The first rape kits weren't used until two years later. In many cases, medical examiners weren't collecting any evidence from the victim's body. They only did visual examinations. And if they did take swabs, most departments didn't have the capabilities to test the samples for DNA or semen. But in Leslie's case, the medical examiner did take vaginal swabs. At the time, Orange County didn't have advanced testing for sexual assaults, but the medical examiner hoped that someday there would be. So in this case, the medical examiner collected several samples from Leslie's body and placed them into evidence. Leslie's autopsy did little to move the investigation forward. Besides determining the manner and cause of death, they didn't discover anything new. All they understood was that she'd been assaulted and strangled to death. So the next logical clue was her dump site, the military base. The location of Leslie's body was intriguing for investigators. The Marine Corps Air Station El Toro was built in 1942 and had become the 4,600-acre home of marine aviation on the West Coast. It had four runways, too long enough to handle the largest aircraft in the U.S. military. When the base was open, all U.S. presidents in the post-World War II era landed in Air Force One at this airfield. After several decades in operation, 
The air station closed on July 2, 1999. The location of Leslie's body was quite insightful because she was found on a military base. Access to a military base is generally difficult unless your staff or your station there. In most cases, you can't simply walk into the airbase in the U.S. You need some type of credential to get there. And once you get on to base, there's a record of you. Every guest is required to sign in and sign out. This told investigators that Leslie's killer had some type of connection to El Toro. Possibly a Marine was involved. The more Orange County investigators looked at the evidence, the less likely it seemed that John was involved. The restaurant staff placed John at the restaurant all night. Besides getting into a small argument, he didn't seem to have a motive to kill his wife. And he had no connection to the El Toro air station. So instead of focusing on John, the police began focusing on the El Toro air station. The area around the air station was desolate. There weren't any homes or stores, the only sign of life for miles. And it was a large base. At the time, it stretched over 4,600 acres. Leslie's body was found on an empty road at the edge of the base. The police thought she was killed somewhere else and then had her body dumped there. According to the studies done by the FBI, most offenders dump their victim's body after the murder either alongside a road or in another public area. And in most cases where the body is dumped, there's no attempt to conceal the victim. Although dumping the body can increase the chances that an offender may be seen or identified in the area of the murder site, they usually do this for two reasons. Number one, they're confident there is no recognizable connection between themselves and the victim. And number two, dumping places time and distance between themselves and the victim. We see both scenarios when an offender kills their victim and dumps them alongside the road in an area where they aren't known to visit. In these cases, it's tough for law enforcement to connect the offender and the victim because the offender has no ties to the location, and oftentimes, by the time the police discover the victim's body, the offender is long gone from the area. But random dumping doesn't always happen. FBI research also suggests that offenders are known to dump their victims' bodies in locations they are familiar with. These offenders take their victims to an area where they know there won't be any witnesses. Then they pick comfortable places where they can easily get in and quickly get in and quickly get out. In Leslie's case, it seemed like her killer knew the area and felt confident he could dump a body without anyone seeing him there. Orange County investigators began searching for people with connections to both Costa Mesa and the El Toro Air Station. But their search was exhaustive. In 1976, there were thousands of Marines stationed there, and many of them had connections to Orange County and Southern California. So the police couldn't identify any particular person who stood out more than the others. 
Once investigators exhausted all of their leads, the investigation went cold. No one at the air station heard or saw anything that night. And for the next several years, the mystery behind Leslie's murder haunted Orange County. It wasn't until 1998 that Leslie's case was reopened. In 1998, the Orange County Crime Lab cold case team took another look. By this point, new detectives in the department were interested in looking at some of the county's cold cases, including Leslie's. The first thing they did was examine the samples collected at Leslie's autopsy. When they examined them, they found semen. The lab was able to extract DNA from the semen. And now with DNA in hand, they created a full male DNA profile. Once they created the DNA profile, the first person they wanted to compare it to was John Harris, Leslie's ex-husband. Although it seemed unlikely that he was involved, the police could never officially rule him out as a suspect. In late 1998, a couple of Orange County Sheriff's deputies knocked on John's door. But when John opened the door, he wasn't happy. It had been almost two decades after Leslie's murder, and he had no interest in speaking to the police. He had spent the last several years trying to move on with his life. So the knock on his door came as an unwelcome shock. The police asked John for a voluntary sample of his DNA. All he had to do was perform a simple and quick cheek swab. But to the police's surprise, John refused. He told them he didn't want to hear anything about Leslie's case and that he wouldn't provide a DNA sample. John's reaction surprised the investigators. They thought that after all these years, he would be happy to hear they were reopening his former wife's case. They also thought that he would be glad they were there to collect his DNA because this would finally prove that he was innocent. But instead, John was angry and uncooperative with them. After they left John's house, Orange County detectives went before a judge asking for a warrant to collect John's DNA. Even if he wasn't going to cooperate, they still needed to compare it. So a few weeks later, the officers returned to John's house, and he acted the same way he did the first time. He was uncooperative and wanted nothing to do with Leslie's case. But the police officers showed him the signed warrant, took an oral swab, and collected his DNA. The swab was sent to the Orange County Crime Lab a couple weeks later, and the detectives got the results back. Negative. John's DNA didn't match the DNA profile pulled from the semen. Now, over two decades later, the police were finally able to officially clear John Harris as a suspect. On one hand, the police were happy about the results. They could finally clear John off their suspect list. But on the other hand, the results meant they were still at square one. Besides a DNA profile, they had absolutely nothing regarding valuable evidence in the case. Even after two long decades, Leslie's case file was only about a quarter of an inch thick. In terms of homicide investigations, that's nothing. In most homicides, detectives have stacks upon stacks of papers and files. Sometimes, 
The case files take up multiple boxes. But in Leslie's case, they had almost nothing. There was minimal movement forward in the case for the next several years. It wasn't until 2018 that Orange County investigators made progress. In 2018, genetic genealogy was taking police departments by storm. Every police department heard about the arrest of the Golden State Killer in Northern California, and they all wanted to see if genetic genealogy could solve their department's cold cases, and investigators in Orange County wondered the same. Genetic genealogy combines DNA testing with traditional genealogical methods to identify genetic relationships between individuals. In criminal investigations, genetic genealogy is used to identify criminal suspects from previously unidentified DNA samples. Once an unknown DNA sample is collected at a crime scene, the sample is uploaded to various DNA databases in search of an exact match or a close match. Genetic genealogy only works if the police have the suspect's DNA. Luckily for Orange County investigators, they did have Leslie's killer's DNA. In 2018, Orange County detectives brought Leslie's case file to the FBI to see if genetic genealogy could be used. The first question the FBI asked was, do you have enough well-preserved samples of the suspect's DNA? Fortunately, The original investigators and medical examiner in 1976 did an amazing job collecting and preserving samples. And even by 2018, there was still enough DNA to be retested. The Orange County Crime Lab sent the samples to the FBI's Forensic Genetic Genealogy Lab to be compared to DNA samples in various genetic databases. When the FBI uploaded the sample, they learned that the suspect came from African ancestry and was likely African-American. The FBI also discovered their suspect came from somewhere in the southern, southeastern part of the United States, likely Louisiana or the Alabama area. The deeper the FBI dug into the genealogy, the more they learned about their suspect. Besides being African-American, they felt confident their suspect was in the military because Leslie's body was found at an air station. With that information, the FBI began focusing on families with military backgrounds. Once they identified relatives with military backgrounds, the FBI requested military records on everyone they identified. The FBI has unique access to military records. They are one of the only U.S. organizations that can access someone's military records other than the military themselves. Once the FBI got the records of the individuals they identified, they began digging through them. They looked for anyone who had connections to Costa Mesa or the El Toro Air Station. Since the FBI received hundreds of military records, they divided the records among several agents. Each agent took a stack of documents to review. Around 1 o'clock in the morning on Easter Sunday, an FBI agent called her supervisor, 
letting him know she thought she found someone. She found a relative of someone who worked at El Toro in 1976. Incredibly, she found someone in a pile of a thousand military records. The individual was identified as Eddie Lee Anderson. When the FBI looked through his military records, he checked off all the boxes. They found out Anderson was a Marine stationed at El Toro Air Station in 1976. At the time of Leslie's murder, he lived in an apartment on Sunflower Street in Costa Mesa, a street directly across the street from South Coast Plaza and the restaurant that Leslie ate at that night. Once they had all this information, the FBI contacted the police in Costa Mesa. They said they had a promising suspect they should investigate further. Orange County detectives immediately looked into Eddie Lee Anderson's background. His military records revealed that he now lives in River Ridge, Louisiana. He had been married twice and was a father to a couple of children. Orange County investigators contacted the local police in Louisiana who confirmed that Anderson was still alive and lived there. Louisiana police also conducted surveillance over the house and saw that an older African-American male lived there who matched the photographs from the military records. Next, Orange County investigators dug up any arrest records on Anderson. They learned that he had been arrested twice over the years. In 1974, he was arrested for kidnapping a woman from a laundromat in Tustin, California. And in 1976, the same year as Leslie's murder, he was arrested for assaulting his ex-wife at her work in Santa Ana, California. Both incidents occurred only a few miles away from Costa Mesa. The 1976 arrest confirmed to Orange County investigators that Anderson was a Marine stationed at El Toro, married at the time, and lived in an apartment less than one mile from where Leslie was last seen alive. At this point, Eddie Lee Anderson looked pretty good for the murder. The police had built a solid circumstantial case, but they still needed the forensic evidence tying him to the murder. They needed to compare his DNA with the DNA collected at Leslie's autopsy. Police from Southern California traveled to Louisiana, where Anderson worked as a truck driver. When they got to his house, they searched through his trash, looking for anything that might contain DNA. Inside the garbage, they found several used needles. Anderson was diabetic and needed to inject himself with regular insulin shots. They took several needles and sent them to the Orange County Crime Lab to see if DNA could be recovered from them. Once they had the DNA, they compared it to the DNA in Leslie's case. And they came back as a positive match. It was Anderson's DNA in the semen collected at Leslie's autopsy. Several Orange County detectives showed up at Anderson's house in Louisiana and asked to speak with him. Initially, he was extremely cooperative. 
he seemed open and agreed to answer all their questions about his time in the Marines and Southern California. But when the detectives started asking him questions about Leslie's murder and why his DNA was found at the crime scene, he denied having anything to do with it. Instead, he told investigators he had no idea who Leslie Harris was. After their initial conversation, police arrested Anderson while he was out with his second wife. His wife had no idea about Leslie's murder and was completely shocked when the officers told her that her husband was under arrest for first-degree murder. The man she knew could have never raped and killed a woman. Anderson was a father, husband, a religious man with a good job as a truck driver. In May 2019, Eddie Lee Anderson was arrested for Leslie Harris's murder and extradited to Southern California. Following his arrest, detectives interviewed Anderson's first wife. She told them during their marriage, Anderson physically abused her. He would often choke her to the point of losing consciousness. After he choked her, he would put her head under water. That crucial detail instantly stuck out to investigators. When they discovered Leslie's body, she was found completely nude with wet hair. The morning she was found, it was a clear day with no fog and no rain, so there was no reason for her hair to be wet. But after hearing that Anderson used to put his ex-wife's head underwater after choking her, it made sense to investigators while Leslie's hair was wet. 43 years after the murder, Leslie's killer was finally put behind bars. But he wouldn't be in police custody for long. Shortly after, 66-year-old Anderson was extradited to California and placed in the Orange County Jail in 2020, COVID-19 began spreading through Southern California. One of the places hit the hardest by the pandemic was California's prisons and county jails. Eddie Lee Anderson became one of the first Orange County inmates to contract COVID-19 while in custody. And seven days later, the virus killed him. Anderson died before there could ever be a preliminary hearing for Leslie Harris's murder. When he died, prosecutors hadn't even scheduled a trial date. Nothing had happened in the case besides his arrest and extradition to California. It took over four decades to identify Leslie's killer. Using genetic genealogy, investigators could positively identify Anderson's relatives from DNA collected at Leslie's autopsy. Since Anderson is dead, identifying a motive for the murder is difficult. Anderson can never be brought to trial to tell a judge why he murdered Leslie. It's also unclear whether Anderson had ever met Leslie before, or he simply met her on the night of the murder. It's possible that after Leslie walked out of the restaurant after arguing with her husband, she tried to get a taxi cab home. But before a cab could pick her up, Anderson approached her. 
At the time, he lived in an apartment directly across the street from South Coast Plaza. It's unclear if he offered to give her a ride back to her hotel or if he forced her into the car. Either way, once Leslie got inside the car, he assaulted her. He then strangled her exactly like he used to do with his ex-wife. After strangling her to death, he dunked her head in water, a sadistic act he also did with his ex-wife. Once she was dead, he likely drove to the air station where he was stationed as a Marine. He drove to a remote part at the edge of the base where he pulled over and dumped her body. He then drove away, leaving Leslie's naked body along the side of the road. He thought by leaving Leslie in a desolate area, no one would find her. And if they did, he didn't think the police would ever make the connection between himself and Leslie. For many years, he was right. Until the police used genetic genealogy, Eddie Lee Anderson was never considered a suspect. The name Eddie Lee Anderson was completely unknown to law enforcement. But with genetic genealogy, Orange County detectives were finally able to arrest Leslie Harris's killer over four long decades later. To share your thoughts on the murder of Leslie Harris, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Elizabeth M., Michael D., Lisa S., and Nicola. If you'd like to become a producer of this show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. 
Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.